All right, the teaching tonight is based on the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This follows immediately on the heels of what Ron just read for us a few moments ago. Here we read. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, But it is written... Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is God's word. I realize that when I, we look at a text like this, I probably could just start uh, explaining and applying some of it. And, and 75% of you, uh, maybe more, maybe less, 75% or so, were born and raised in Christian houses and you've heard this story before and you're fairly familiar with it. And it doesn't at all sound odd to you that Satan as a person being is walking with Jesus, tempting him. And yet there's another 30% of you or maybe 40% of you who maybe weren't raised in Christian homes and maybe haven't heard this story before or maybe just living in, in 2018. That sounds like a lot to sort of wrap your brain around. A personal being in the devil having personal attacks uh, on Jesus out in the wilderness. And that sounds a little strange. And so I want to start tonight by saying uh, society is finding that increasingly less strange, interestingly enough. Uh, The statistics out there on what people believe are suggesting that increasingly more and more people are actually, particularly young adults, are buying the idea of the supernatural in their lives. Uh, One example of this, I would say, would be, uh, I was reading an article last month, uh, yeah, it was December in the Atlantic, that was talking about the rise, the spike, kind of unexpected spike, uh, that the Catholic Church has received in requests for professional exorcisms in 2018 there was an unexpected spike in requests for exorcisms. Now, some of the research that they cited in that article actually was some Gallup poll stuff that said back in 1990, uh, 55% of the adults in America would say they believed there was such a thing as a personal, not just demonic forces or evil forces in the world, but a personal being in uh, Satan himself that was tempting humanity and so forth. In 2007, so less than two decades later, that number of American adults spiked to 70%. In other words, over the course of less than two decades, there was a a 15% rise in the amount of American adults who believe that Satan as a personal being is in fact a real and true and plausible sort of thing. Uh, I was again struck by this just a couple weeks ago. I was watching a movie 
that uh, I, I, number one, like movies. Number two, like to stay sort of aware of what the American public is consuming regarding spirituality and, and even uh, the, the topic of the movie, I guess would say, I would say is like spiritualism. Uh, and interestingly enough, the main character in the movie, midway through the movie, is sitting in a group therapy session and she's talking about the various history in her family of mental health disorders and she's talking about things like schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder and things like that. And the insinuation of the movie is actually that uh, what had been categorized in her family for a hundred years as mental health disorder was actually demonic activity plaguing the family. Now, all I want to say, granted, it's a movie, but all I want to say about that is 100 years ago, don't you realize that people, especially in higher academics, were saying the exact opposite thing? So, for instance, in the mid-20th century, particularly in the academic settings, when people would look at stories of the Bible involving demonic activity and things like demon possession that Jesus was interacting with these demons uh, in the Gospels, they would look at that and say, ah, those primitive people. Those unscientific people, they don't, they don't know stuff. They don't know neurochemistry. And they were labeling that all as uh, demonic activity when in reality it was just chemical imbalance. Here we are 100 years later, less than 100 years later, and granted, movies are making the insinuation 100 years ago, those foolish people who thought they figured out everything through science, they were diagnosing this and they were diagnosing that. In reality, the, the insinuation of the movie is that was actual demonic activity present. All I'm saying is this. Our society has actually gotten to a point where there's a receptivity, uh, particularly with young adults, uh, towards the realm of the spiritual and towards the realm of the supernatural. And according to the Bible, you know why that is? Because it's true. Because there is such a thing as de demonic forces in the world. Because there is such a thing as, look, it's impossible to have a comprehensive understanding of the brutality, the violence, the hurt, the pain, the oppression that exists in the world if you don't have something like Satan in your vocabulary. If you think all it is is chemical imbalance, that's all it is. Uh, I think you're going to be left wanting in the terms of the explanatory powers that the world offers to you. Um, let, me, let me make it more personal. For yourself, if you don't understand the reality and the presence of Satan and demonic force and spiritual realm in your life, I don't think you're ever going to find a satisfactory explanation for all of your personal behavioral struggles and for your dislocated and often fragile identity and uh, for any host of, of other things in your life, your, your feeling of helplessness in a big and scary world. If you don't understand the workings of Satan as a personal being who's seeking to lead people away to be their very worst and detach them from relationships with Christ, you're not going to have a thorough explanation of why the world works the way it does, and you're not going to have a comprehensive understanding of why you function the way that you do. Or if I put it a little bit more positively, it's very difficult. You're not going to have as much hope for the future as you should unless you see what Jesus does with Satan. Okay? So, uh, with that in mind, let's break, it, let's break the teaching into these three points tonight. I'm going to make it very simple. We're going to see the then of this text, the tests of this text, and the triumph of this text. The then, the tests, the triumph. I'll explain each of those, okay? The then is the easiest one and the briefest one, and I'll go real quickly on this. It's the very first word of the very first verse. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
number of you have heard me say before, uh, what, that the, that the Bible verses and chapter divisions and section headers are not inspired. They're sometimes helpful for referencing stuff. They're not inspired. So when Matthew actually wrote his gospel, he intended it to be read as one long piece of literature. This is part of the reason why we're doing in this worship series through Easter, we're going through the entire gospel of Matthew, because when you divide the Bible up kind of unnaturally, you miss stuff. Uh, You would miss, if you only read chapter four, you miss the then. What do I mean by the then? Well, then obviously means whatever happens in chapter four comes immediately on the heels of chapter three. What did, what happened in chapter three? Well, Ron read it for us a couple minutes ago. Jesus was baptized. The spirit, of the, God, uh, the spirit of God came down upon Jesus and the heavens opened and God the Father said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And that moment, then, Mark's gospel actually says, immediately the spirit ushers Jesus out into the wilderness in order to face temptation and testing. Why is that important? The way the, the default human mind tends to work is we tend to think this is the the religious mind and this is the way man-made religion works. If I'm good and I behave well, God will love me, accept me, and bless me. And if I'm bad, poorly behaved, God will, or the gods will, punish me, right? If I'm good, I get blessed. If I'm bad, if I behave poorly, I get punished. Look at Jesus. It turns that whole concept right on its head. Why? Because the God the Father has just gotten done saying, this is my son. He's perfect. He's flawless. I love him to death. I am so pleased with him. And then his life starts to fall apart right there. His his whole life starts to unravel. I can't tell you how many Christians I know that when they experience trouble in their lives, so in fact, most people who are Christians who fall away, at some point in time will look at the circumstances of their life and say, but God is not here in the details. God is not here in the circumstances. And then then they lose hope. What have they forgotten? Look what, God says to Jesus a declaration, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And then immediately Satan comes out and attacks that. You have to see, between these two points, you have to see there's first a voice from heaven and then there's a voice from hell. There's at first a statement, a clear statement of identity and purpose. You are my son, an affirmation. You are uh, with you, I am well pleased. And then there is a voice that comes and saying, are you sure? Did God really say, if you really were God's son, don't you think things would be going a little bit better for you than what they currently are? See, this is, don't you understand? This is the exact same temptation that comes into your life. At your baptism, see, uh, what Jesus does when he gets into the baptismal waters is he's identifying with our sins and he's starting this journey of switching places with us. And since he switches places with us, what that means is everything God the Father says about the Son, he says about you and me as his children as well. And therefore, God has said to you in your baptismal waters, he said, you are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. It's not only that you're forgiven for your sins. Oh yes, of course you are forgiven for your sins. It's that he's pleased with you. He enjoys, he's, he's enamored by you. And the temptation of life and the temptation of the Christian is every day Satan comes along and says, are you sure? If God really loved you, if you really were his child, don't you think things would be going a little bit better than what they currently are? Don't you see that's exactly what happens to Jesus? So you have to understand the, the relationship between three and four here, that Jesus gets the affirmation and the status and the identity from God But then immediately it feels like his life is falling apart. And that's the test that every Christian faces. Okay? 
Then we move into the tests. There is, man, there is so much here. I would love, it would take way too much time. And this is, by the way, I'm going to put in a plug for our growth groups, which are starting up uh, the week of January 21st. This would be one of those things. There's three tests in this text. This would be one of those things we'd peel apart and unpack at great detail in those growth groups. We don't have the time to fully do it tonight, and so I have to address them almost as a, a group and say here's the unifying theme attached to each of them. But the first thing that I want to say about the three tests is this. You notice that when Satan comes and tests Jesus, he doesn't tempt him with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He does, the things that the world generally tends to look at as the, the tempting stuff, he doesn't try to get him to bite on, like, quote-unquote, bad stuff. Uh, there was, uh, most of you are probably actually too young to remember this, there was, there was a movie back in the late 80s that was highly controversial by the famous director named Martin Scorsese called The Last Temptation of the Christ. Some of you have heard of that. Willem Dafoe played the, uh, the role of Jesus in it. And, the, and it got a lot of flack. It got a lot of controversy and, and pushback. And for good reason. Um, in part, although here's the thing, let me just say this. I'm actually a little sympathetic towards what I think Martin Scorsese was trying to do. I think he was trying to present the struggle of Jesus Christ from a human uh, perspective. He's trying to get you to relate to that. The problem was it was completely unbiblical and that made it also completely nonsensical. Look at how Satan tempts Jesus. Satan doesn't come to Jesus and take him to a brothel and say, all right, have your way. Do whatever you want. No. He comes to Jesus and he offers him good stuff. In fact, not a single thing that he offers him is wrong, outright, nor is it uh, something that, not a single thing that Jesus actually doesn't deserve. Um, he doesn't go down the Ten Commandments and just see like what might be Jesus' particular vice or what might get him to bite. It's not that he tries to tempt him into grabbing onto bad things. What he tries to do is he offers good things, but he tries to get him to present it in such a way, to take it in such a way that he has to defy God's word and the priority of what God has already told him, the Father has told him, in order to get to that good thing. So for instance, what are the three, real quickly, what are the three temptations? He comes to him and says, why don't you turn those stones into bread? What's wrong with bread? I know some of you are gluten haters and stuff like that. There's technically, believe it or not, there's technically not anything wrong with bread. Uh, But, uh, and Jesus doesn't have any issues with bread. Jesus has eaten a lot of bread. Jesus at one time miraculously provides bread. And then when he establishes the Lord's Supper, he institutes it using bread. He's not anti-bread. What's the problem? Satan says, why don't you use some of your own personal power for your own personal benefit? If you notice, when Jesus dispenses his power in the miracles of the Gospels, he never does it, ever does it, for personal prosperity or gain. He always does it for the benefit of others, for the service of others and the glory of God. And so what Jesus is essentially saying here is, Look, the Holy Spirit has taken care of me and provided for me for 40 days and 40 nights and sustained me. It's not worth it at this point. I'm going to trust that he's going to keep, take care of me moving forward. I'm not going to give in to using my power in some kind of special way uh, at this point. Second temptation is what? He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, he's at the height of the temple and uh, the, uh, he's overlooking what's called the Kidron Valley. And the Jewish historian Josephus would say this is about 500 feet in the air. And he, Satan basically says to him, I want you to jump. Why? Because he uses scripture. 
This is one of the reasons why understanding how Scripture interacts with one another is so important because anybody, including Satan, can take a one isolated passage of Scripture and bend it to mean almost anything that they want it to mean. This is the importance of theology and the importance of doctrine. Um, Satan says, doesn't the Lord say that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways and they will not let you strike your foot against the stone? So he proclaims scripture in that way and is trying to, was there anything wrong with trusting Jesus or trusting God? No, of course. But Jesus says, no, I can't because that would be testing God. The third temptation, I'm going to circle back to each of these. The third temptation is he takes him to the mountaintops. And he shows them somehow all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, I can give you all the splendor that exists in the world, all the majesty, all the glory, all the power. Is any of that inherently bad? No, it's not. But what Satan's trying to do is he's trying, in fact, Jesus is ruler over all the universe. All the kingdoms of the world ultimately will eventually bow the knee to Jesus. What's the problem? Satan is saying to Jesus, you can have all of that without ever going to the cross. I can give you all the glory without any of the cross. Is that appealing at all? Yeah, of course that's a temptation. So what does this mean? In each case, Satan is offering something good. He's offering bread for the hungry. He's offering safety in difficult circumstances. He's offering rule and glory and power. Nothing wrong. Not a single thing is wrong with any of the things that Satan is offering to Jesus except when you take good things and you push them into the best things in your life, when the good things become the ultimate, ultimate pursuits of your life, the real enslavement of life, the real temptation of life is not the bad things. It's to turn the good things into your best things. And that, which the Bible also calls idolatry, is what drives all the other bad behavior. Uh, Satan is essentially saying in your life, look at that good thing. Don't you want that good thing? But the moment he tries to get you to crowd Christ as a top priority out of your heart in order to get it, it becomes, according to this text, a demonic force. All of us are susceptible to this. Um, ministers are susceptible to this. Ministers are, here, here's the great irony that, I mean, it is, it's relevant in my life and I see it constantly. Ministers are, are uh, susceptible to this in their ministries. That they take a good thing. What is the goal of this ministry? The goal is to lead other people to love and worship and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you know how many ministers struggle with the success of their ministry actually clouding the glory of Christ in that ministry? That it actually becomes almost by all costs, I would uh, try to promote success and achieve success in the ministry, uh, which gets in the way of giving glory to God. And the interesting thing is when you push that good thing into the ultimate thing position, it leads to all sorts of crazy emotions and attitudes and behaviors, things like self-righteousness or self-loathing or anger or judgment or condescension or hatred or deceit or living a lie. It's not just ministers. All of us struggle with this. All of us have some good thing that is trying to become the ultimate. Satan's trying to pluck the strings to make it the ultimate thing in our hearts. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's career advancement. Sometimes it's personal health and wellness. Sometimes it's the approval of others. Sometimes it's financial security. Uh, sometimes it's physical beauty. It doesn't matter what it is. The biggest thing in your life that is a temptation is what? 
It's the disordered love of a good thing that's what's beneath all of your bad behavior. If you gave me five minutes and told me what you struggle with, I can tell you, see, it's, it's the difference between if you have a sore throat and really have strep throat, but you think you just have a sore throat and you just think, I just need to keep tossing lozenges in there and I'll eventually, it'll go, you know, I'll be fine. And you're dealing with the sore throat of disordered love and idolatry with the lozenges of behavior correction. You need, you need the medicine. You need to get to the root of all this thing. What is the, what is the good thing that is the disordered love in my life? See, what the Bible says is you are a child of God and what that means is that's the best thing imaginable because nothing can grant you more in life than being God's child. Because at Jesus' baptism, he says what? Look, when Jesus hops into the water, he's doing it to identify with our sins. When Jesus goes to the cross, he's going to it to pay for all of our sins. What he's doing is God's great exchange. He's switching places. What that means is everything that God says about Jesus, he says about you. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God says that about you. He doesn't just forgive you as though I could somehow say just forgive you for your sins. He's pleased with you. He's enamored with you. He loves you. But Satan's daily assault is if you really were God's child. This is the same thing that Satan says to Jesus. If you were God's child, wouldn't things be going a little bit better for you? How do you overcome this temptation that is, controls most of the behaviors of your life? That's the, the final part, the triumph. And I'm going to break it into essentially two parts. It's Jesus teaching us how to overcome the temptation of sin, but actually, actually seeing what happens because Jesus overcame his temptations. The way this story ends, the last verse, is... Jesus resists temptations three times from Satan, and then Satan leaves. Isn't that interesting? It's not, as, it's not as though Jesus was never tempted throughout the rest of his life, but you and I both know that there are certain seasons of life in which certain things tend to be really significant temptations. And Jesus in the wilderness is going through one of those seasons. Now, how do you overcome it? I think the way I would have looked at this as a kid, because... What Jesus is giving us here is a blueprint for how you defeat temptation in your life. I think as a kid, I would have thought Jesus resists Satan's temptations. Why? Because he's God and he can do anything. You know, this text practically goes out of its way to say the way Jesus deals with this temptation is not by divine power. In fact, he's kind of emptying his divine power along the way. Acts, uh, there's a verse in Acts chapter 10 that says when Jesus faces these temptations, he's able to accomplish it because the spirit of the Lord was upon him, not because he's natively so powerful. Uh, Verse 4 in the text actually says uh, that Jesus makes the statement, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, he's facing this temptation primarily as a man. Now, why is that helpful? Jesus, the God-man, is experiencing these temptations principally from the perspective of a man. That's helpful because if he was able to overcome the temptations, he gives us all the resources necessary that we can overcome our temptations too. It's easy to say, well, he's God, so he can just not give in. But if he's human, but he's using resources, what are those resources so that we can beat our temptations too? And it's basically two things that are both linked. It's the word of God and the power of the Spirit. Now, this is another thing that I did not really realize until I was an adult. When Jesus defeats this temptation, did you notice how he does it? 
when Satan comes to him and says, turn the bread, or turn, excuse me, turn the stones into bread, Jesus responds by saying what? No, I won't do that. I'm better than that. So he just muscles up the willpower to overcome that temptation. No, that's not at all what he does. What does he do? In that first test, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and he says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What really gives you life is not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out of the mouth of God. And he says, the Spirit was the one who held me together for these past 40 days, and the Spirit will continue to do so moving forward. I don't have to give in to your lies, Satan. He quotes scripture. And so then Satan brings him another test, and it's the test to jump down from the temple. And he actually distorts the word of God in the process. And how does Jesus respond to this one? He says, it's from Deuteronomy 6, It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He overcomes the temptation actually by speaking scripture. And then there's the third temptation of uh, taking him to the mountaintops and giving him all the kingdoms of the earth and all the glory and all the majesty and Satan saying, wouldn't you like to have all of us? All you have to do is simply bow down to me. You can have all the glory without the cross. And Jesus responds by saying, but it's also written, you should not serve anybody but the Lord your God alone. He says, get away from me. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's always quoting from scripture. His responses are not his own ideas. His responses are not the product of willpower because Satan's bigger than you and stronger than you in your human state. But God and his word are bigger than Satan. And here's the point. Um, Jesus is essentially saying to Satan, you're lying to me right now and I'm not going to give in because even though what you're saying kind of feels like like it might be right and it sounds kind of nice and good, it's not because I know you're a liar and I know that God only tells the truth. And so I'm going to default to listening to God here. Um, let me put this a slightly different way. I sometimes get the, my experience with people in what I would call spiritual conversations is very often people will say something along the lines of, doesn't the Bible say blank, fill in the blank. And then they'll say something along the lines of, and you've done this before, you know you have. Uh, doesn't the Bible say blank? Uh, I don't remember where it is in the Bible. I'm not really good at referencing stuff like that. People do the exact same thing when it comes to names. Uh, very often, people will say this to me as a pastor sometimes. I don't know if I could be a pastor. You're good with names. I don't, I'm just not very good with names. I have never met one person who's good at names. That is such a cop-out. Maybe there's one kind of name savant out there who just memorizes everybody's names. Nobody's good at memorizing names. You know how you learn people's names? Effort and interest. You care about somebody and you think, how can I get involved in their life and serve them? And you remember their name. Nobody's inherently good at names. Nobody's inherently good at memorizing scripture references either. And don't get me wrong, I know what you're saying when people say that. Oh, it's in the Bible somewhere, and I don't know exactly where. I will never scold somebody for not knowing where something is in the Bible. I will never scold somebody for very often even not knowing what is or is not in the Bible because we're all at different paths in our faith journey, and we all have different levels of familiarity with what Scripture says. What I won't let you get away with is saying, well, I'm just not good at it. Uh, number one, that's not true. It's just a matter of interest and effort. Number two, it minimizes what Jesus is doing here too. 
I think sometimes we think that Jesus was able to quote scripture as often as he does, which we see in Matthew's gospel more than anywhere else because Jesus has some kind of divine microchip in his head, uh, like a version app in his head that when, G- when somebody gets, t- he gets tempted, he can just play the, play the right script. You know why Jesus knows so much scripture? He studied it constantly. It was his highest passion in life. It was the most important thing, and maybe even more than that, he actually believed that it was the source of all life. It was the source of all truth in his life. It's kind of like, the analogy that I'd make is it's kind of like some of you have favorite writers, or maybe even better is some of you have favorite characters on TV, and you know them well enough, you've consumed enough of them, you've consumed enough of their words that you know when they get in certain circumstances, you know how they're going to respond. You know the types of things that they're going to say. Right? Some of your favorite TV show characters, you know how it'll play out. In fact, if you've consumed enough of their words, something, interestingly enough, in your own life, certain circumstances will come up that you know, you start to think, oh, this character would do this in this circumstance. Maybe you even use some of their catchphrases. Why? Because you've consumed their word to such an extent that it now lives inside of you. That's what God wants you to do with his word. He wants you to consume it to such an extent that it reflexively, naturally flows out of you just like the air that you breathe. Uh, And the closer that you get there, the more that your your heart and your soul and your mind get saturated with scripture like that, the better you will become naturally at deciphering Satan's lies. Because remember, Satan can't control you. Satan can't harm you. Satan can't do the only thing that he can do. The word devil means liar. The only thing that he can do to you is lie. And the more saturated you get with God's word, the better you are at deciphering his lies and the better you will become at rebuking his lies with God's truth. And yet I have one more point. This is the final point. This is the most important point. And if you haven't checked, if you checked out at some point, check back in right here. Because if you hear one thing, I want you to hear this thing. This text is not ultimately about Jesus teaching you how to resist temptation. That would be disappointing. Uh, because we'd still be miserable because we'd still fall short. This test is about how Je- this text is about how Jesus overcame temptation for you. Um, see, I-, I already said it a couple times tonight, but let me say it again. Jesus' ministry, his baptism, getting in the water is to identify with your sins. Going to the cross is to pay for your sins. He doesn't do that to show you a model example. He does it because he knows you're going to fail at the temptations that you face often. See, yeah, absolutely. Does this this test teach us a ton about how to overcome temptation? Without question. So commit it to memory, commit it to heart and mind, and implement the, the tools in your life, the saturation of Scripture. But this text is not primarily about teaching you how to defeat temptation. It's about how Jesus defeated temptation in your place. Uh, He loved you. The whole purpose he's getting baptized, the whole purpose he's going to the cross is because he knows you're not going to succeed in all of your tests in life. And yet he loves you by grace and forgives you and accepts you anyways. And you know the ultimate example of how Jesus shows us that scripture overcomes temptation, scripture overcomes sin? It's actually at the cross. It's the the end of, of this part of the story of his work. Because when Jesus goes to the cross and he pays for all of our sins and all of the times that we've failed to make good on overcoming the temptations, you know what Jesus does? I never knew this until I was an adult either. When Jesus speaks words from the cross, you know what he's speaking? Scripture. 
he's not uttering his own ideas. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just cleverly coming up with something. He's quoting Psalm 22. When Jesus says, before he utters his last breath, my father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That is not just some poetic invention. He's quoting Psalm 35. In other words, Jesus doesn't just use scripture to overcome his temptation. He uses scripture to overcome all of your sins too. And if scripture is that powerful, if Jesus walked his whole life and said, whoa, I could never dream of going a single day, even as the God man, I could not dream of going a single day without my heart being saturated by the word of my father. How on earth would you and I ever try to do it otherwise? In other words, uh, last week, part of what we said was, as you start your new year and your new journey, what we said is don't get angry at God. Don't get frustrated at God with the, the uh, opposition that you face to your faith in life. Praise him for wherever your journey is at. The commitment we're making this week is we're saying, look, if you can see what scripture can do, not only in overcoming temptation, but Jesus using it to overcome sin, death, hell, the devil himself, Commit yourself to not letting a single day of your life go by without scripture saturating it. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, as we worship you tonight, we come humbly asking for forgiveness uh, for being such easy pickings in temptation. Um, We get obsessed with the bad stuff that we do And we need to become aware of the good stuff that we love more than you. And our hearts need to get rearranged. And our loves need to get reordered. And our lives need to get reprioritized. Forgive us for not always keeping you first. Forgive us for falling off uh, the wagon of, of not letting scripture saturate our lives. But thank you. Thank you for Jesus loving us enough that nothing got in the way of his ultimate priority. Not food, not comfort, not wealth, not power, not glory. Nothing was more important than glorifying his father's will and loving and serving and forgiving us. Thank you for that. That gives us new life. That gives us real life. And so what we're asking moving forward is that you would help us use the word daily as the ultimate resource for progress in our lives and for glorifying you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.